Welcome to Family History, Genealogy Made Easy. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. You probably have a lot of curiosity about your family history, but not a lot of time. And that's why I created this podcast. In each episode, I'm going to give you the tools that you need to uncover your family tree in quick and easy ways. We're going to start off today by continuing our use of U.S. federal census records. Last episode, we located relatives in the 1930 census, and today we're going to push further back in time to follow the census breadcrumb trail. Then in our second segment, we're going to explore some census enumerations that often go overlooked by family historians with Kurt Witcher, the manager of Historical Genealogy Department of Allen County Public Library. Kurt is a very well-known genealogy lecturer, and he has some great ideas for tapping into the more obscure census resources. If you just think of federal population schedules as your only census record, you're missing so many possible records. When people think census, I would like them to think, you know, enumeration of all kinds, local, state, federal, and you can find some amazing information. We all, most of us like CSI, you know, we, yeah. we like the show, the crime forensic scene Forensic files, yes. Yeah, exactly. Well, in many ways, those same forensic, evaluative, evidence-gathering skills are what we do as, as exactly. family historians. And if we can think about population schedules and census records as enumerations and kind of put on our CSI mindset, well, we're really trying to find not just one, but as many enumerations as we can, then we get more leads. We can find mm-hmm. more records. As you'll recall in our last episode, we talked about the U.S. federal census records and started with searching in the 1930 census, which is the most currently available census. I hope you gave that a try, either by signing up for a free trial at Ancestry.com or using Ancestry for free at your local library or family history center. In that episode, I looked up my great-grandfather, Charles Allen Burkett, and we found him in 1930 living at 2044 South American Street in Stockton, California. He was with his wife, Ellen, their three daughters, and a grandson. My grandfather was an adult living on his own at that time, so he wasn't in that household. So I have continued to do what we do as genealogists, which is to continue to work backwards in time. And I searched for this train conductor and his family in the 1920 census. And I found them living in Portola, Plumas County, California. And being earlier in Charles's career, I found him working as a brakeman for the Tidewater Southern Railroad. And this time, his last name is spelled B-U-R-K-E-T-T. And my grandfather, also Charles A. Burkett, was age 13, so he was living in the household. And so we continue to research backwards. Now, since great-grandpa Charles was 36 years old in 1920, I'm going to be looking for a man uh, that's about 26 years old when I go back into the 1910 census. And since we determined that he and Ellen probably married around 1902, um, based on the information that we found in that 1930 census, saying that Charles was 22 years old at the time that they married, 
we would expect to find him living with his wife and some of the children in 1910. So we'll use the same search strategy as we did in our last episode. We'll put B-U-R asterisk to pull names into our results that might be spelled a little differently than what it is today, and we'll include Charles's approximate birth year and place. And that B-U-R asterisk pays off because they are back to spelling that name B-U-R-K-E-T-T-E. And of course, I wouldn't have caught that if I had just put in B-U-R-K-E-T-T. And this time, they are living in San Francisco. Charles is listed as C. Allen, and his wife Ellen has actually been misrepresented by the census taker as Helen. And you should expect to find those kinds of variations uh, as you're working with the census. I'll never forget searching for another pair of great-grandparents, um, the Sporens, and they were from Germany. And I had heard from family lore that great-grandma had sponsored her nephew, Walter Lada, and brought him to America a few years after they had arrived. But when I found them in the 1920 census, there were the Sporens and the nephew living with them, but he was listed as Walter Lada, V-A-L-T-E-R, a clear indication that the census taker took great-grandmother's German accent very literally. <laughs> so we know that Helen is really Ellen, and the head of the household is Charles Allen, even though he's listed as C. Allen. And that makes sense, because my grandpa was known as Al, and so it's logical that his father also may have gone by Al or Allen. And in 1910, you'll find some interesting elaboration on the marriage of your ancestors. Uh, I'll have a link in the show notes for this episode so that you can take a look at the Burkett family in the 1910 census. They don't just list your ancestors as married, but you'll often find them as M1, as in the case of the Burkett's, or M2, etc., indicating how many marriages they had had. It's possible that the government saw divorce on the rise and they wanted to get a sense of how many families were being affected by divorce, and this might be a way to do it. And again, you'll find either their age at the time of their first marriage, or you'll find a question about how many years they've been married, which is the case with this Burkett record that we've pulled up. Either way, you can calculate the year that they married as 1902, which confirms what we found back in the 1930 census. Now, the next column is new as well and can be very helpful to our research. Uh, The wife is asked how many children, if any, that she's had. And then in the next column, how many of those children were still living? What an interesting question to ask. And with infant mortality rates so high in the 19th century and early 20th century, uh, it's not surprising that they asked the question, uh, but it certainly, the answer certainly sheds light on whether there were other siblings from that family who did not survive that we never knew about. It's very interesting that the question actually doesn't appear in the 1920 census, since by 1920 they were living with the aftermath of the 1918 Spanish influenza, which really wreaked havoc across the world. After locating the 1910 census, uh, again, you want to determine how old the person that you're looking for should be in the next one and make your best guesses on where you might locate them uh, in 1900. And don't give up if you don't find them the first couple times through. Keep switching up the information that you're searching on and use the search tips link that you'll find in the Ancestry search box. 
And in addition to using the asterisk to represent up to six letters in the name, you can also use a question mark in place of letters that you're not quite sure about. For example, um, I have occasionally found Ellen misspelled as Ellen, E-L-L-I-N, in records. So if I try E-L-L question mark N in my search, then I would end up with uh, getting both spellings in my search results. Another terrific set of questions that you're going to find on the 1900 census all the way back uh, through to the 1930 census have to do with immigration and citizenship. Immigration was a booming business in the early 20th century, and the government wanted to get a better handle on immigration and how many of those immigrants were getting naturalized as citizens. So you'll find columns for a year of immigration and whether the immigrant was still an alien or had been naturalized. And in some cases, the year of naturalization, which is great. I found that the forms can vary slightly from state to state and certainly from year to year. But this is invaluable information when you're searching for immigrant ancestors. And we'll talk more in future episodes about how to use those dates to locate those immigration and naturalization records. So we've enjoyed some good success in working backwards to the 1900 census, and we've found lots of great information. And many of the innovations that led to all that great information can actually find its origins in the 1890 census, including a new punch card tabulation technique for counting the census that was created and first used back then by Herman Hollerith. Using Hollerith's system, the rough population count for 1890 of over 62 million people was completed in just six weeks, which was amazing at that time. Hollerith's system shaved years of effort off of the tabulation process and saved the taxpayers approximately $5 million compared to previous censuses. Now, this is all great news, right? Well, unfortunately, we're in for hard times as we enter into the 19th century censuses. Because, in fact, I can almost guarantee that you're not going to find any census records in the 1890 census. And that's because in 1896 a fire occurred which damaged the mortality, poverty, and handicap special schedules of the 1890 census. And the remaining census records were destroyed by order of the Department of Interior. Now, the good news was that the original 1890 census, the only remaining copy of the population schedules, was still available. And it was moved into a file room in the basement of the Commerce Building in Washington, D.C., So just envision tons and tons of paper stored on pine shelving. So when on January 10th, 1921, a mysterious fire broke out in the basement, the building was saved by the Washington, D.C. Fire Department because it saw a potential for real disaster there. And and they strove to keep the fire contained and eventually extinguished in the basement so as to prevent complete destruction of the building. But it wasn't the flames of the fire that destroyed the 1890 census stored on those wooden shelves, but rather the at least 20 fire hoses spewing water all over that basement. And when it was all over, it was estimated that 25% of the 1890 census schedules had been destroyed, which doesn't sound that bad, right? However, an estimated 50% of the 1890 census was damaged by the smoke and, worse yet, the water. The small remains of the 1890 schedules, including just 6,000 of the 62 million people counted, were moved out of the basement of the Commerce Building and into temporary storage. 
The good news is that this disaster helped to push through the calls for a permanent national archives be built, which, you know, all of us genealogists benefit from today. So what happened to the remnants of the 1890 census? Well, they were destroyed by government order back in the mid-1930s as part of a routine record retention and destruction guidelines uh, at the time. But genealogists are a tough and persistent bunch, and there have been heroic efforts to compile alternative records from the same 1890 time period that could serve as an alternative to that lost 1890 census. So I'll have a link in the show notes to a database that's being built as a substitute for the 1890 census on Ancestry.com in collaboration with the Allen County Public Library, whose manager is also my guest today later in the show. It includes fragments of the original 1890 census that have survived, as well as special veteran census schedules, um, several Native American tribe censuses for years around 1890, um, state census records, and states did take their own censuses. Um, so they pulled those from 1885 and the 1895 state census. And we'll be talking more about state censuses in a future episode. Um, they also pull from city and county directories, which are a fantastic resource, um, alumni directories and voter registrations. And they are continually adding to that database, so you'll want to be sure and check back periodically. So even though we've come up against some tough challenges, such as the destruction of the 1890 census, it should only make our resolve stronger to find another way around the roadblock and to push forward with our quest to climb our family tree. And remember, population schedules that contain the names of our ancestors are not the only kind of enumerations conducted as part of the U.S. federal census. Coming up next, my guest, Kurt Witcher from the famous Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana, a premier genealogical library, will be here to tell us more about some of those lesser-known enumerations that can be of tremendous value to us in our search. Witcher is the department manager for the Historical Genealogy Department of the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He's the president of the National Genealogical Society and a past president of the Federation of Genealogical Societies and is the founding president of the Indiana Genealogical Society. Kurt also served as a research consultant for the Ancestors television series and is currently on the advisory board for Ancestry, Inc., and a contributing columnist for Ancestry Magazine. I met up with Kurt at the Federation of Genealogical Societies Conference in Philadelphia in 2008 and talked with him about a class that he gave at that conference where he discussed alternative census enumerations that often go untapped by family researchers. Here's my conversation with him. Well, I am sitting here on a wood block of some type here in the FGS Conference Hall here in Philadelphia with Kurt Witcher, not a bad companion to hang out with for a few minutes and watch the folks scurrying and trying to decide where they're going to go in the next class. Kurt, I just sat in on your terrific presentation. I had a full audience. They were jazzed about it. And it was all about stuff. <laughs> all the good stuff. Maybe some right. stuff we've missed. And um, tell us specifically what kind of stuff you were focusing on. Well, we were focusing on all of the 
stuff, <laughs> to, use, to use that term, that was created historically around the federal population schedules. When people hear census, they automatically think of population schedules. But as, as we discussed last hour, that there's more, way more than just federal population schedules. There's agricultural and manufacturing and mortality and veterans. And, and then we kind of ended the hour just kind of showing people how many other types of enumerations there are, sort of under that banner of all that other stuff. Because if you just think of federal population schedules as your only census record, you're missing so many possible records from all of the non-population schedules that were taken in conjunction with the census records, with the population schedules, but all those other enumerations. And when people think census, I would like them to think, you know, enumeration of all kinds, local, state, federal. And you can find some amazing information, as we saw during the presentation. And you know, as you were talking about that, and you know, most of us have run across an agricultural right. enumeration, and um, sometimes the business ones. And I guess it's because they're tacked on to the end of a population schedule. And I started thinking, now, why is it I've missed some of these? And I'm guessing it's because they're not easily accessed through Ancestry or Heritage Quest. Am I, am I correct on that? You are. Um, and, and, and that's unfortunate. Um, uh, the exciting thing about the, the 21st century is that so many people have come to genealogy over the web. Um, yes. we, we jokingly call them, you know, the born digital genealogists. I mean, <laughs> they haven't come to seminars or, or workshops. They've come to genealogy uh, through things like podcasts and blogs yeah. and, and, and really large sites like Ancestry. Um, the sort of, you know, maybe small downside to that is if information aggregators like Ancestry don't put them out there on their websites, then people don't know about them. And you don't they, and know what you don't exist. know. Exactly. 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 That, that's and, and the perfect. world of, of resources looks a bit narrower. And boy, did you just kind of blow the ceiling off of that for everybody. I could see the eyes opening and saying, whoa, I thought I understood what was out there, and I think I've missed a few things. Right. And um, I think you mentioned about seven different ones, um, and not every one of them has a name, but there was quite a variety of information. Uh, one of them even had signatures, which yeah. I love. You know, you were, you were saying, made a comment about, oh, there's some folks who love to collect, you know, the signatures. I'm one of them. Right. I think, that, I think okay. that's fun. It's just a lot of fun on top of it. Yeah. So um, maybe you could just touch on some of those differences and the fact that not each, you know, every enumeration is different, isn't it? It, it really is. And um, what we joked about during the session, you know, uh, we all... Most of us like CSI, you know. We, yeah. we like to show the crime <laughs> scene investigators. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Well, in many ways, those same forensic, evaluative, evidence gathering skills are what we do as, as exactly. family historians. And if we can think about population schedules and census records as enumerations and kind of put on our CSI mindset, well, we're really trying to find not just one, but as many enumerations as we can. Then we get more leads. We can find mm -hmm. more records. Um, a couple of the ones that we looked at, the social schedules, for example, they, they don't list a single name on the social schedules, mm -hmm. but you know all the taxes that are collected. So now you know, okay, if I go to the courthouse and I'm looking for tax records, I know for this county I should find you know these three or four types of tax records. If we're doing research in a county, the social schedules tell us what newspapers were published, whether they that were weeklies fantastic. or monthlies. Yes. They tell us all the denominations that are represented <laughs> in that county and how many churches there were. So if we're pretty certain our ancestors were Lutheran or were Baptist, well... We know that there's a finite number. There's two Baptist churches in, in this, and then we can set out finding, okay, which ones were they? Uh, where were they? 
are there any records? Uh, and that's that funny. It made me think of brick walls. We think we have brick walls, and I tend to think maybe they're a little more artificial than we thought because we, we found the records that had the names and the dates and the places, but we skimmed over the records that just had tick marks or, you know, newspaper exactly or whatever. Right. And exactly. those were chocked full, the way you showed them to us, of clues to help us break the brick wall because they're going to send us different directions than we would have known to look. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And th- you mentioned brick walls. I don't know how, how everyone else uh, you know, deals with or feels about their research, but to me, the thing that scares me or frightens me the most is running into a brick wall or coming to a dead end and really having no real clues about where to go so i like the methodological sort of the old stubborn german approach of just you know (laughs) slow but steady you know just try to mine every document for as many clues and pieces of evidence that you possibly can and and these non-population enumerations are golden for doing that particularly if you try to find all of them that exist i'm guessing with your mindset you don't have as many brick walls as the rest of us do because there's you're never really quite to the end of the corridor (laughs) you have too many different uh hallways you're looking down um so maybe you can uh, hopefully we've excited people to understand that there are a variety i'll have um the major headings on the show notes for this podcast so that people will know what you refer to besides just population. Where would they go to look to find these records? Well, the, 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 the first best place to get just a general flavor for their time period, their state, and their county, uh, three great places. One is to go to the National Archives website, and they can just plug into any browser, archives, plural, archives.gov. Oh, Boom, okay. they come right to the National Archives website and look for census headings on their website. They give great downloadable explanations about not just the population schedule, okay. but all of the non-population schedules. And the, they give some treatment in some instances to state census records. Okay. Uh, but generally it's just the federal records. second great place to look are the holdings, and, and, and all of them are online. State Library, State Archives, State Historical Society. Those right. three are, are your second tier. Um, state Archives and State Libraries oftentimes have copies of the state census schedules as well as the federal ones. But th- those special state enumerations. Those state ones that happened, that fell between the decades. Exactly. I love that. Exactly. Particularly you showed an, an example of 1895. Oh, it makes you realize, that's right, that's right. We're not right. out of luck because 1890 burned. Exactly. So, okay. Exactly. So state archives. Uh, and, and state libraries will oftentimes have, you know, references to an actual list of those, what I call the really special enumerations, um, as well as state archives. They'll have microfilm of the uh, dog licenses. Um, depending upon what state codes were in particular areas and time periods, you know, you, you'll have an enumeration of physicians. You'll have an enumeration of taverns keepers. You'll have mm-hmm. an enumeration of individuals who received bounty for wolf pelts. I mean, amazing. <laughs> wow. Amazing. What a variety. Right. Well, th- this has just been a, a ton of fun. I'm so glad I, I snuck into your class and got myself a seat. It was a full house. Um, but, Kurt, thank you so much for joining us on the show. And um, maybe last thing, did you have any suggestions on articles or books or things to point listeners to to learn more about these unique and very special uh, enumerations? Ancestry's the source has a great chapter on census records that really covers the waterfront on all these different types of enumerations. We've been trying to coax them to make that electronic. Oh, yeah. So on their website, we could find that much more easily. Also, if you go to 
the National Genealogical Society has published a number of records, and the National Genealogical Society Quarterly has been, you know, the the profession standard for a long time on these methodology articles, and a number of census articles over the years have been published in that quarterly, as well as case studies on how people have used these special enumerations to... So if you, you look at them and you go, uh-oh, they still look like tick marks to me, you could go and read a case study and maybe then see how somebody turned that into something viable. Absolutely. Kurt, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure. Well, that's going to bring us to the end of the show. You'll find the show notes for this episode, which include all the links I've talked about at my website, genealogygems.com. And there you'll also discover a lot more tips and tools for finding your family history in my podcasts, the blog posts, books, and videos. Become a Genealogy Gems premium member, and you're also going to get access to exclusive content like my full-length video classes and the premium podcast episodes. We have a new one of those coming out every month. Now, if you have any questions about this episode, or if you'd like to share your experiences on how the podcast has impacted your own family history journey, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at genealogygemspodcast at gmail.com or leave a voicemail at 925-272-4021 and we might just play it here on the show. Thanks so much for listening, friend. I'll talk to you soon.